Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Memory Lane podcast on the DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcasting Network. I have been involved with and around minor league baseball for nearly 30 years. And minor league baseball has changed substantially in that time. Uh, I'm, I kind of epitomize the class 4A player. I've covered double A for this will be my 25th season covering the Altoona curve. I'm the longest tenured minor league baseball beat writer for one team in the entire country. I don't know if that's something to be proud of or to uh, be embarrassed by because I've never made it to the major leagues. I'm just not a major leaguer. I'm a double-A player. That's all I am. But I've seen minor league baseball change substantially over time. And I'm telling you, over the last year or so, minor league baseball has undergone incredible change and will continue to do so in the coming year. So I want to have a, a good conversation about that. And one guy I thought of to do this with, former Pitt baseball player, a guy I think of as a professional hitter, and I don't throw that phrase around a whole lot, Jim Negrich. I, I mean, professional hitter to me is about one of the best compliments I can give a baseball player but you absolutely were a professional hitter in college and throughout your minor league career. How you doing today, man? I'm good. I appreciate the kind words. How are you? How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. Jim played at Pitt in the early 2000s. I won't ask you, but your batting averages were 378, 349, and 396. Then you played 10 years in the minor leagues and professionally overseas. In 10 years, I am going to ask you this. I'm going to put you on the spot here. In 10 years as a professional, do you know what your lifetime batting average was? That, uh, no, actually. <laughs> let's, really let's, let's guess. I'll give you within seven points. Give me a number and tell me. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll give you within seven points. We can play a game with it. Uh, 285? What? No, come on. 302. Jim Neighbors' lifetime. You didn't even come, come close to guessing uh, 300, but 302, <laughs> including all your time overseas. That's what I refer to. When I talk to the kids I coach, Jim, I say, hey, man, if you, if you get out 70% of the time, that means you're a great hitter. So uh, you certainly were that. I, I just wanted to share your, get you to share your thoughts. If we can, first, what was your pit experience like? What, what was it like for you playing for the Panthers and, and enjoying great success there? It was, you know, it was, Way different, you know, growing up in Buffalo, New York, it's, it's obviously not a baseball hotbed. The weather's not 
uh, really cooperating up there. Uh, and when I got to campus, I mean, I was so naive at, at what a college baseball stadium looked at. And, and the field we played at was the old Three Rivers turf and a grass outfield and a portable fence and right, but it had lights. And I remember being so excited that they had lights. And I think we played like one night game the three years I was there. Um, so just getting there and then seeing the city of Oakland, uh, you know, I, I didn't really grow up in, in downtown Buffalo. So being on that campus was a completely new environment. And it's something that, you know, it helped mold me into the person that I was just being at that campus. And I, I'm really grateful for that. And you came back to coach at Pitt years later. What was that experience like? It was almost a different universe, you know, at the new facility. Uh, now we're in the ACC instead of the Big East. Um, and, you know, I was taking classes the first year. I wanted to finish my degree. Um, wasn't sure I'd ever actually do that. And it, it, and I got it. So I was really, you know, I don't get proud of myself too often, but that was one of the few times that I've been fairly proud of myself getting that degree. Um, but as far as the way the program was and where they were, it was a lot different. Even the players were different than the kind of guys that I played with. What, uh, tell the folks what you're doing now. You've been around professional baseball for a long time. What are you doing these days? I am currently a scout for the St. Louis Cardinals on the amateur side. Um, so what I do is, is I have an area up in the Northeast from Charlottesville, Virginia, up to Maine, and try to get out and see anyone that's, you know, has a chance to be a prospect or, or a draftable player that's um, eligible for the amateur draft. This is great because for you as a player from Buffalo playing at Pitt and now as a scout, how does somebody get found in the Northeast? My boy's 10 years old, Jim. We play ball. Our season doesn't start till April 21st. Most kids in the South are playing in February. Uh, in, Miami, in Florida, they're playing year-round. How difficult is it to become a high-level baseball player, somebody that can get to the pros – being in the Northeast? It's it's becoming a, a little bit easier. There's been a, a large amount of indoor facilities that has kind of split, you know, the, the guys that used to not be able to play year-round. You are able to play year-round up here. It's just not outside, if that makes sense. So you're still able to hit and take ground balls. The only thing is the outfielders, you know, you're not getting a lot of reads on the in, you know, when you're indoors like that. But as far as being able to stay in tune and be able to play year-round, it's obviously way more uh, effective now than it was back you know, when I was younger. Um, but the best way to get looked at is, is you just got to keep playing it. There's scouts everywhere, and they talk just like everyone else talks, and, and you find out about guys. And, and social media has been really helpful as far as identifying players. Um, you can take just about anyone's name and put it into – a Twitter search and some sort of video will pop up of this kid playing. And then you, you look at it real quick and, you know, then you just kind of do the, the superficial stuff of like, all right, he looks the part that looks right. This doesn't look right. I'm good there. Or uh, maybe I'll see this guy. And you got a whole year to, to, to run into guys now because of the winter time being able to work out indoors. So it's a little bit easier for guys to be seen, um, especially for colleges. It's way more, where college used to be a geographical recruiting landscape, and now it's turned into a national, and social media has really um, taken taken hold of that. Jim Negrich, again, was an excellent hitter, hitting 390 in college, five foot nine, about 180, 185 pounds. You were not a big guy, kind of a 
prototypical middle infielder, out, you know, outfielder kind of guy, and yet you're drafted in the sixth round by the Pirates in 2006. All right, so Rob McCoviak once told me a story. I think he was a 52nd round draft pick, and he said, uh, "Oh yeah, my my scout called and told me that, or my my, yeah, my agent called and told me I was drafted, and uh, he took me to Subway. That was my signing bonus, but I had to pay." So, uh, as a sixth round pick in 2006, did, did, did you get much of a signing bonus? Did, did, what, what was, what was that amount of money like for you at that stage in your life? I mean, it was a lot for me. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, in this glamorous, you know, mansion where some of the kids do nowadays. And, and my parents, you know, I, they, they did fine. But for me personally, like, yeah, I think it's something like a hundred, 150,000 or something of that nature was what I signed for. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I was able to keep it and, and put it away. And, and I was looking if there's a guy that was from Buffalo that I, that handled most of my money. So I wasn't one of the guys that spent a lot of money. I was able to put a lot of it away and, uh, and carry through until I eventually met my wife. And then, you know, then that that's been gone for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> just this week, just this week, uh, Major League Baseball has reached a collective bargaining agreement with minor leaguers, basically doubling the salaries everywhere. A double A player, double A Altoona Curve players, basically for the most part of the franchise history, have made less than $10,000 per season. This year, it will be $30,000 per season. That's a significant amount of money. You began your career in 2006. What was life like for you? You, you report to Williamsport. What is life like as a minor league baseball player at the rookie level in 2006? I mean, you're just happy to be there. And, you know, when you first get, when you first get there and, you know, you, you do what you have to do. You got to live with more guys. Uh, maybe you got a three bedroom and, and you stick with four guys in there or three, five guys in there and someone pays, you know, $200 a month. They stay on the couch or something of that nature there's always places to stay. The The housing aspect of it, yeah, you had to pay for it, and that made it difficult for some guys. If you didn't get a signing bonus, it was really difficult. Um, but you able you were able to, to manage that and find a way to, to, to get a place to stay, and the clubs did help you in that aspect of you know, knowing where to stay and guys that were there before. And you, then you just figured out how many people you need to live with to make it more affordable. What did you eat? Uh, you know, when you get to the AA and AAA level, then you're talking about like legitimate meals and post game, pre game, and stuff of that nature. So really, you just kind of grab lunch, you know, something to bring to the park. You know, when you get there at seven o'clock game, you get there at you know one o'clock somewhere of that nature. Uh, so you usually bring something with you there, and then that's about all you really had to pay for for food. The lower levels, however, you know, it, it is you find the the best way to eat unhealthy. The best way I could put it. You find the best fast food for the cheapest amount of money that has the fewest calories. Is that is that what we're talking about? Yeah, like the grilled chicken wrap or something. Yes, like right. Like you're trying to eat. You're in a bad situation. Everyone's in this situation. You just find something that's not terrible for you. And if I can estimate, 2006 short season Williamsport, you were making give or take. A thousand dollars a month. Is that about right? Yeah, somewhere in that range. Give or take. I didn't get a, 
comma in my paycheck until like five or six years in. There's no comma. <laughs> there's no. So it's less than. So it's, <laughs> that's a great way to. So it's less. Than, all right. So, all right. And and you said something interesting there. I don't want to gloss over because people don't necessarily realize about minor league baseball. So the game's at seven o'clock. What time do you get to the ballpark? I'd usually get there somewhere around one o'clock. Why on earth is a minor league player getting to the ballpark at one o'clock in the afternoon? Oh, you kind of, you get there, you have a little bit of downtime, you eat a sandwich, you know, find a place to eat, and you bring a sandwich in there. Uh, then, you you know, you got to go through your preparation. The older you get, the more stuff you have to do prior to, to, to just get your body ready, whether you go like a cold tank, hot tank, kind of, at, uh, what's it called? Uh, set up there where, where you're contrasting just to get your body loose, and then you got a foam roll stretch, and then you go into the cage and you hit. Um and you just, you know, we are all at that time, you're comfortable where you are, but you're not in a city that you know all that mm-hmm. well. Yep. So there's really nowhere else for you to go, except you go to a place that you're comfortable. And that, that ends up being the clubhouse and you got 30 other guys in there and you play some cards. Or you just, you kind of hang out until stretch, stretch takes place. There's always something to do, whether you're lifting that day or you're just going in the cage, you want to be in there early because after you hit, you want that downtime or maybe you want to go and stretch, work out, and then hit late so it feeds right into you know, stretching, going out there. Do you have early work? There's always something going on, but you're, you're just comfortable there. I mean, that's what everyone talks about when you're done playing. It's very rarely that you miss the games. You know, you miss that. You miss being in a clubhouse. You miss being around the boys. Um, those experiences are what you really miss when it comes down to it. And that's where a lot of memories are made in that environment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You played 10 years professionally. The cities were Williamsport, Hickory, Altoona, Lynchburg, West Oahu. That must have been fantastic. Uh, Indianapolis, Jacksonville, Syracuse, 
Harrisburg, Buffalo. You spent most of your dadgum career in the Northeast still. Did you ever get the, uh, that, that, that Oahu experience had to be a blast given the fact that you're growing up in Buffalo and playing for Syracuse and Altoona? Yeah, that was the Hawaiian Winter League. They had that for, I mean, it was more prevalent back earlier prior to myself playing. Then they brought it back for, I think, a year or two, and I was one of the guys that got chosen to go out there. Uh, it was definitely a, a fun experience. I mean, Also, a, you also played yeah. independent ball in Lancaster, and you played in China. I want to get to the China experience here later on because I have no experience what it's like uh, with, for players who, who played in China. I've talked to guys who played in Japan, so I am curious your experience there. But as you, again, Jim could hit. Jim Jim was always going to be a guy that, that, that w- you, you'd notice. He'd be on the radar. You had a chance to move up the levels pretty good. You got to double A. You got to triple A. You had success. Uh, won some championships uh, with, with the Altoona Curve. I know you won in 2010. As you work your way up, double A, triple A, what, what, was the money substantially better? Was it any in any way life changing better? You get into double A and you're making fourteen, fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars a month or whatever it was. Did did that really change much of anything, or was it still kind of a little bit of a difficult lifestyle? Yeah, I mean, you you, you you learn to adapt to it. I mean, you 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 knew you weren't breaking the bank unless you got to the big leagues. Um, I didn't really start making money in the minor leagues until uh, I got released from the Marlins and then signed like a free agent contract with the nationals organization. And at that point I started making a little bit of money. And the following year I signed a a pretty nice contract with the blue Jays organization um, prior to going overseas. Um, But none of it's life changing. You know, you got to get to the highest level in order for that part to take place. But at that point, you know, you're 26, 27 years old. If you haven't learned how to live under the financial restrictions that you're at, uh, I really don't know how to help you at that point. You know, you did it for five, six years. That's right. Of, you know. Now, minor league baseball has changed drastically. Let's say when you were with the Altoona Curve in 2010, this was kind of sort of the beginning of the change for the Pirates. The 2010 Altoona Curve team was Matt Haig, Chase Darneau, Jordy Mercer, Josh Harrison, um, Rudy Owens, Jeff Locke was on that team. No, no, Jeff Locke was a little bit later. Um, uh, Jared Hughes was on that team. So, some, uh, some really good young pitchers. Everybody was a little bit younger. Earlier on in the, the curves history, they had 28, 29, 30-year-old guys in AA. That is absolutely is not the case anymore. Now it's more 21, 22, maybe 23. What was the transition like when you when you got to the AA level? And because the reason I'm asking is because some guys are single. Some guys, if you're older and you're 26, 27, 20, you, you want to start thinking about getting married. Now you've got a very different dynamic in the clubhouse with maybe some 27-year-old who's married and a 21-year-old guy. Yeah, the type of the age of the player is definitely much younger now. You know, they're getting guys up there at a faster pace. Um, you don't need to play a whole season in A-ball or low A. You know, you can start in low A and finish in double A by, by that midpoint if you do what you're you know expected to do. But yeah, when you walked into Altoona, my first go there, I mean, I think I was 23 at the time, which now is almost close to probably the average age is 24, 25 in, in double A, I'm assuming. I don't know the actual number there, but yeah, I was, I was a puppy compared to the rest of the roster. There's guys with two, three kids and 
guys that have been in the big leagues for five, six years working their way back. It was a completely different environment than even two years afterwards because um, you could see what the organization was doing and, and how they were going about building up the organization at that time. So, yeah, the, it was a completely different lifestyle walking to a clubhouse with grown men when you're still essentially a young adult at that time. Do all the guys associate then? Do the young guys, is, is there a lot of association with the older guys that are married, or are they getting out of there quickly? They, they've got something to do maybe with their wife or family, and so maybe they're not in the clubhouse as much. Did you, did you see a lot of that? Just at times, but, I mean, you have other responsibilities at that point. On the road is where, you know, they could be more – towards what they maybe they were when they were younger you didn't really notice it you know because everyone's it's it's still your job and you have a thing that you're supposed to be doing on a daily basis and that involves playing between the lines you got to be there on time as far as how long you stay afterwards that's on them like if you got to go you got to go i wasn't a real hangout afterwards um guy in the clubhouse i would be there early play eat change shower get the heck out of there like that was kind of my my the way i did it and I didn't, I wasn't married or had a family or nothing. So I think that kind of differs just depending on the person. You, no one really holds a grudge or doesn't like that as far as uh, how long guys are in the clubhouse. Was there a lot of griping among players about the pay or the conditions? Or is it just something everybody accepted and, and, and nobody, nobody talked about it? Yeah, it's more the latter there. Okay, There's so- no reason to talk about it because you're all in the same boat. I mean, everyone in that locker room essentially – so when you get the AAA, you might have some guys that are on a big league deal or that are down or whatnot, and there's some guys making some really big money there. But when you're in the lower levels or even AA at that time, everyone's in the same boat. So it's like growing up in Buffalo complaining about the snow. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's coming. <laughs> no one's got time for that. All right, so now we're in a very different time frame now. Starting last year or so, major league teams are paying for housing of minor league players. I just want to start with that. If you could have had your housing paid for in the minor leagues, how different would that have made things? Yeah. I'm, I, everything would have helped at that time. Um, I, I don't think it would have been game changing for us because, you know, by the time you, you take out how many guys live there, we're probably only paying three, $400 a month. Uh-huh. I mean, average lease is i mean fifteen hundred dollars for like a three-bedroom apartment you put four guys in there and and you come out to like 350 a month you know okay so not terrible so now again just this week uh, the figures are out there thirty thirty thousand dollars a year for double a 35 for triple a i mean you're talking about making fifteen seventeen hundred a month in double a 10, 15 years ago. Now it's going to be roughly, it'll come out to 6000 a month, but that money is kind of spread out throughout the year. Uh, when you see those kinds of figures, how different do you think that's going to make it for minor leaguers going forward? I think it helps in the offseason. Uh, you know, not everyone has the same family life, the same family dynamic. I was lucky. You know, my parents were, were still, you know, living in Buffalo. They're, they're still married going on 50 years here and you know, when, I, when I'd go home in the off season, that's where I'd go. Like I'd stay at my parents' house and, and obviously that's rent free. And that helped me be able to go and work out and, and focus on my craft. Not every person is that lucky. This is just allows guys that aren't in that situation that don't really have a spot to go to and they have to live out year round and then still be able to train and, and put this first as your profession. And what, what you're trying to do is, is reach the ultimate the ultimate goal is to get to the big leagues. In order to do that, you have to work in the off season. This, you know, they get paid year round, uh, at least some sort of money helps put a, 
uh, uh, second job on the back burner or looking to something else because you just can't afford to live the lifestyle. This should benefit um, mostly every player, especially the guys that didn't have that type of uh, family dynamic. What kind of second jobs did you have during the offseason? And what are, what are some of the craziest jobs you heard that teammates or friends had? Uh, myself, personally, I mean, I would like help at a baseball facility if the guy threw to me or <laughs> you know, throw me flips or let me hit it there. I would just like work the desk or do a camp for him here or there. So that I didn't really have that problem. Uh, the, the weirdest one or like the most, uh, the funniest one would just be the guy that worked like FedEx at four in the morning. Like he delivered packages at the first shift and that was it. Like he'd be done at, you know, eight in the morning and then he'd have to go home, go to sleep and then get up and work out and, and train and do all that stuff. Did you know a lot of so, substitute yeah. school teachers? There were some of those. Yeah, that's another one. I think you made like a buck fifty a day, and sometimes you didn't even have to do anything. Uh, you just went there and showed up. Some guys did that. You make it work. You have to do what you need to do to survive. And if you needed to work a second job, then you needed to work a second job. If you didn't, then you didn't. Then you just weren't focused on baseball. And and you got here's the the big question. I, I, it's kind of an easy answer, maybe, but why? Why would guys put themselves through all of this life, some, some of these life obstacles and, and adversity for six, eight, ten years, making no money and ha- having a, a little bit more of a difficult part? Why would guys endure all of that? There's nothing like it. I mean, you're trying to get to the major leagues. First of all, the reward when you get there is it's worth all the hardships. Um, the second word, you know, when you play professional baseball, you're you're in the one percent of of the population that that got to put that uniform on and try to get there. You you live a life, and I know it's a short life. Everyone says, you know, especially when you get older and you start seeing things happen. I mean, I have a four year old daughter; it's going on five, and it's like, well, how did that even happen? But at the same time, it's a long life, so you gotta you got to take your chance to do something special when you have that opportunity, and that's really what you're trying to do. Is you're trying to accomplish something that very few people can say that they accomplished. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You played eight years in the minors, a couple overseas. You did not make the big leagues. Did you ever get close? Was there, were you ever, as far as you know, and sometimes, you know, a lot of times teams don't tell players this, were you ever the next guy that might have been called if something had happened? There was one time late uh, when I was 
uh, playing in Buffalo that was that was a year that I you know I got off to a scorching hot start and had a good spring training. I was in big league camp and I, I did well there. And that, that was probably the, the one time that I thought that that was going to be my chance. Um, it didn't happen. And then you got to learn from that because I didn't handle that the right way. Um, and now as an adult looking back and seeing it, I should, I could have handled that differently, but does that mean I would have gotten there eventually? I, I don't know. That was kind of, you know, my ability to play defense is why I didn't get to the big leagues. It's that simple. Um, but that was probably the one time that I, that I felt that I'd have an opportunity to get there and it, and it didn't work out. So you just got to learn from it and, and continue moving forward in this world. You went over to China in 2014 and 15. You played about 100 games, hit well over there. The first year, 366. Second year, 333. How how did you end up in China? And just what is what is life like in China for a baseball player? Well, I was in Taiwan. I mean, so, I mean, depending on who you talk to, it could be one and the same, but Taiwan was, it was fun. I ended up, Getting, so uh, your games were in Taiwan, train. not necessarily mainland China? Yeah, I was on the island. Did you travel there. into China to play? No, we played all over the island. Uh, I played for the Brother Elephant team, and it's that's like their their team there. Okay. It's, it's, you know, everyone likes to follow in. We had the, the really famous player locally um, that, you know, he was like the Derek Jeter over there. Okay. And he was on the team. So we, we traveled a lot, uh, all the island was only from top bottom. I mean, they got a great train system there. It'd take like an hour and a half high speed train to get from the top to the south. It was fun. Um, I ended up getting released and I went to independent ball. I think I played two games there and then an agent from overseas contacted me with and said, like, hey, would you be interested in coming over here and playing? The roster construction is they're only allowed three foreigners and that's everyone. That's that's the Dominican players, Venezuelan players, mm, yeah. American players. And, and normally that position went to pitching. You know, there's not a lot of players over there as far as, you know, fill up an entire roster. So you get your arms from the state. So the Dominican, when I showed up, it was me and, and, and two other pitchers. And then it was always like that when I was there. Um, but you but went it, was, you, it was a great experience. You went over there and hit. I mean, 884 OPS one year, 825 the next year. Uh, I'm not trying to get too personal here, but – is the, is the money over there okay? Is it better than the minor leagues? Is it similar to the minor leagues? No, it's much better than the minor leagues. I mean, it's part of the reason why you go. Um, your goal as a baseball player when you're playing in the minor leagues and in the States is to get to the big leagues. Once you come to realization that that's you know, probably not going to happen, then you're just kind of looking for where else you can play. And, and yeah, the paycheck was, was a part of me going over there. It wasn't the, the entire reason, but it was a huge part of it. Um, and I went over there and, and I just got married at the time and I immediately left and went overseas and she couldn't come with me. So that was a difficult aspect of it, but it was a really nice country. It was beautiful, uh, very clean. Um, it's almost Americanized. Taipei was very, uh, there, you know, there was local restaurants, you know, the, the same ones we have here. So if you ever missed like the food in the States, there was plenty of spots to go and eat and, and get something of this, or you just, you know, really bought into the local life and, and ate, their food and it went to their their what is it night to where their streets and there's parties almost like every night on the the street markets they're called and that they were a blast i really enjoyed my time over there and they just loved playing man they love playing and those players i mean i remember my first experience there was raining i came from the states and 
I'm like, I'm just sitting in the locker room. I'm like, where is everyone? And they come over and he said that they're taking ground balls. And I was like, where? <laughs> and he's like, in the hallway. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like, I'm not, it's rain out. I don't, I'm not playing in the rain. And they weren't outside. They were literally in a regular hallway. Like you're in Altoona under the clubhouse and it's got that plastic flooring or whatever the is. And they're taking ground balls out there. And I'm like, I, I can't believe I'm doing this. I gotta, but that's how much they love to play. What most of us know about Chinese Taipei baseball is they've dominated like they're always in the League World Series and, and kids coming in throwing all these great curveballs. And, and then we don't necessarily hear from those players again after they're 12 years old. When you were over there, were you there long enough? To, what happens to those guys? Do they, become, do they become superstars in their own country or do they filter out of baseball? What happens to those kids? No, do you become... You know, in their own world over there, they're superstars in, in their league. And they also have, you know, you, you go to Japan and play. You go to Korea and play. There's two other leagues that are, are they're not major league baseball quality. You know, that same aura that, that the big leagues has. But they go over there and they play. And then they come back home. And it's a very similar aspect to what we do. It's just they're going to Japan or, or Korea. Or they have their own draft. They get drafted there. And then they hold their rights if they go to a different uh, country and play. Um, there's also a military uh, stipulation. I, I believe when I played there that you had to serve for your country two years after graduation for two years. And sometimes it's, you know, you had to play for the national team and that was you, you doing service for your country. Okay. Uh, so we would lose a player towards like the three quarters way through the season. He had to go play for the national team. Like wow. no questions asked. He, he, he was gone. So it was just a different type of lifestyle, but it was the same game. And it made communicating a, a lot easier because you all know that language, you know, where you're supposed to be on the field, what you're doing out there. And, and it makes it way easier to bond than just me going out there as, as a tourist and trying to visit the country. I'm not going to have that same type of bond with, with those guys. There were some players there that you know didn't speak English that I had a really good relationship with. I want to wrap up with this, Jim. What do you think minor league baseball is going to be like here in the future? We've got ballparks all over the country spending millions of dollars in upgrades um, to get up to speed. Uh, they're doing that in Altoona. They've spent a lot of money, and, and, and places will continue to spend a lot of money for the upgrades. If you go into a clubhouse now, there's food everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, not only are the post-game meals and pre-game meals, not only is all that stuff a whole hell of a lot better, now you've just got all this, all these dietary things and all, all of this uh, food that's available to you really at any time. Players are going to be making more money. They get their housing paid for. I mean, will minor league players ever watch Bull Durham and say, what the hell was that? That's not our life. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they... That there might be some guys like that. There's going to be some guys that, that respect the, the way that other guys had to do it. It's all about growing and adapting to the climate of, of today's person. And the player today is, is a little bit different than it was back then. They're, they're not as naive as we were. They're smarter. They're more in tune with, with things that, you know, maybe weren't that important with us because we just didn't know any better. You know, the living situation, the food situation, like I, we didn't know a nutritionist or what was good to eat. I mean, you had the basics of it, but not in depth the way these guys do now. Um, they're very talented. All you know, players nowadays are, are far more skill, you know, in a skills perspective. They're, they're probably 
better than where we were from pure skill standpoint. It's just learning the game and how to play it and, and what type of player you are. All that stuff still needs to take place. But as far as just talent and ability, I mean, it, it's a really fun game to watch and you get out there and go see these guys and they do some things that you're just amazed at. It's just a consistency which they do it isn't isn't there yet, but it, it was the same way when we were there. Do, you, do players of your era feel good for these guys of the this era and, and going forward that they're going to be rewarded for their talents and efforts more so than more so than minor leaguers traditionally have in the past? Yeah, there's no reason to you know, not like it. It's good for the game. It's it's good for the players now. The lifestyle, listen, everyone has their own journey, and some guys, I'm sure if you talk to them, it's, it's a completely different experience than I had, and they'll go out on tangents about how awful it was and this. I, I had a good experience playing. Uh, I was with the Pirates through two different regimes, so I got to see both sides of that, and the other clubs that I went to, Washington, uh, Miami, and Toronto, they were all really well-run organizations that all had different aspects that you liked and aspects that you didn't like. Um, and then you grow and you, you just, you, as you become an adult and you're in this kind of environment that I'm in now as a scout or, or if I got into coaching or something of that nature at some point in my life, you take a little bit of everything with you. And uh, I, it's good to see where the game is going and that these guys are going to be able to go out, compete, not have the financial burden that some other players had in the past. And they can really focus on trying to get to the big leagues because it's not easy to get there and it's even harder to stay there. Hey, excellent, excellent stories, man. A lot to be proud of. A 300 batting average over a 10-year professional career. That's that's insanely hard to do. I hope you're proud of that. And uh, these are some fantastic stories. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share everything with me, Jim. I appreciate it. Thanks, Corey. All right, thanks, Jimmy.